here today with Natalie Kingston, the director of the National Institute for Health Research Bioresource for Translational Research. It's known to many as the NIHR Bioresource, and it's a panel of thousands of volunteers, hundreds of thousands, I believe, both with and without health conditions who've consented to be approached to take part in all kinds of different health research. And we're going to talk about the program. It's been running for, for a number of years um, and, and has contributed to all sorts of exciting genomics and precision medicine research over this time. I actually encountered the bioresource for the first time while I was a PhD student. I worked with the team to analyze some of the very earliest whole genome sequencing data in the UK that was part of a pilot for what would eventually come the 100,000 Genomes Project. And, and I didn't know much about this project until I started to get involved. And I just thought it was amazing how much, uh, how many volunteers and how much data across all sorts of interesting technologies were being collected. And one of the things that was really pioneering from my perspective was how engagement with participants and, and the ability to recontact participants was actually thought about really from the outside of the project. So we're going to spend some time talking about that participant engagement angle because, of course, anybody who's worked with biobank data or other large-scale genomic data sets knows that this is not something we can take for granted. So with that long intro, Natalie, I'm really excited to speak with you about uh, how the bioresource has evolved over the past nine years and some of the work that's on the horizon. So welcome and thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks very much, Patrick. Lovely to be here as well. Thank you. So as I mentioned in the intro, you've been the director of the bioresource for about nine years. I'm curious what drew you to this role in the first place. Yeah, so it's a bit of history here. Um, I think, you know, like a lot of people, I always had an interest in science. I did biology uh, in France. I did a PhD uh, in Scotland uh, in immunology. And, and then after that, like, you know, a lot of people, you do postdoc as a bench scientist, uh, looked at uh, autoimmune and infectious diseases. And then obviously, yes, as you said, our paths did cross when uh, we worked at the Sanger Institute. And where I was exposed to um, research on a much broader and bigger scale, really. And, um, but the Barrisource, what actually really interested me is, is their mission, you know, the potential impact that it has on everybody, you know, uh, our strapline is bringing people together and leading research. But actually the whole point of the Barrisource is to help facilitating and speeding up research in experimental medicine or early phase clinical trial. So really contributing to, to better understanding between the link of um, between our genes, uh, the environment and, and disease, and to better understand specific conditions, uh, contribute to the development of new diagnostic and the potential to develop new treatments as well. And I think all that actually sums up quite a bit what the Barrisource can do for, for health research. And one of the key words there is the translational aspect, because like many bioresources, unlike many bioresources, you all do a lot of work in, in early phase clinical trials and, and at that interface. I was curious, what was the bioresource like when you joined nine years ago and how has the scale and the scope and the kind of research you've done evolved over those last nine years? Yeah, so yeah, I joined in, in February uh, 13. And at that time, the uh, our founders, the NIHR, the National Institute for Health Research, has just announced that it wanted to support and establish a national infrastructure to facilitate health research and translation. So it all started in, in Cambridge back around 2005, 2006, when some researchers wanted some blood sample from volunteers. And they realized very soon that actually bleeding lab colleagues was no longer an option, <laughs> really, you know. So from one Cambridge Barrister Center, it actually became a federation of eight local centers in England. So that was created and to get a better national reach, really, and obviously a, a better number of, of volunteers. 
you could donate a sample. So the balance uh, participant can be healthy, as, as you say, healthy members of the public or patients with a common or rare disease, and everybody can really join and help. But since then, you know, it actually has increased. Um, the Barrister's was refunded in 2017, and we have expanded now to 13 centres across England. So from Exeter to Newcastle, we are pretty much covering uh, quite a bit of, uh, of the, the, the region around here. So our participants, they consent, still the same uh, system as back in the early days. And they, uh, they consent to the barrels, they donate a biological sample, ideally blood, because we can do much more than a saliva sample. We can therefore get some genetic data, so it can be just high-density array to exome or whole genome sequencing. And then, of course, you know, the, the criteria here as well for us was for their samples and their data to be stored safely and securely in our infrastructures as well. Um, our participants, they provide some self-declare information about their health or their lifestyle, so whether they actually um, smoke or have uh, alcohol consumption as well. And they consent for the barristers to access their health and medical records as well. So that's the unique twist about it for the bar resource is that actually those volunteers can be uh, contacted to participate in the future in studies and according to a specific genotype or phenotype. So we have uh, various national programs now and uh, we recruit, as I say, members of the public. Loads of blood donors have joined the panel as well. And we've got patients in uh, IBD, um, so inflammatory bowel disease, um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, uh, mental health disorders, and obviously as well, quite a lot of rare diseases. And more recently, obviously, we went into uh, COVID-19 as well. Um, so there's, there's plenty of scope to do. And most, more recently and very recently, we launched a young people's bar resource. So the first phase is to recruit through schools. And for that, we really want to give all pupils the opportunity to contribute in health research. So this is, this is another aspect that we are developing right now. Well, I wonder if you could share across all those examples of your disease areas, and there will be dozens of projects and programs going on underneath each of those. What are a couple of the most exciting moments that you've had over the past nine years where you've been leading and developing this resource? So it's difficult to pick up, I think, uh, a couple of them, but I will say that actually they are the most rewarding you know, exciting, but most rewarding, definitely. So the Barisos has an history in recruiting families with a rare disease condition. So we've contributed to the pilot for the 100,000 Genome Project run by GELD or Genomic England. And um, one of those achievements or, or most rewarding uh, moments for me is actually the um, what came out of the Next Generation Project. So this is a, a rare disease project that was led by uh, Lucy Raymond and uh, David Roich, two professors in Cambridge. And what they, they showed, um, those research team, is that uh, you could actually do whole genome sequencing on very young patients in NICU or PICU, so a neonatal and pediatric um, intensive care unit. And that could contribute actually to the diagnostic, uh, to the underlying condition of those children. So not for everybody, but actually a good percentage actually could be understood through a whole genome sequencing. And obviously the time is of the essence in general uh, for rare disease patients in particular. The patient journey, as we call it, is more an odyssey and takes years. And um, if actually you, you have a very young 
uh, child, your child being uh, in uh, NICU or PQ, you want to actually know what's wrong with your with your child very quickly. And um, actually, this is translation analysis best because it showed that whole genome sequencing can be used and is now one of the NHS first-line diagnostic tool for for such uh, cases. So this was really very much a research project has translated in, into the NHS. So that's, that's for me, is, is quite key, is seeing this from the start to the translation in the clinic. And, and it's gone, I mean, it's gone really quickly. I remember in even three or four years ago, there, these were just early proof of concepts and there were, mm -hmm. there was almost how quickly can we turn one of these whole genomes around and can we do it in a week? Can we do it in three days? Can we do it in two yeah. days? And and now, like you said, it's, um, it's being rolled out across the NHS, right? So that is, that's really fast in, in our, in our world where new, yeah. new drugs or diagnostics can take a decade sometimes. Exactly. And then the second example is again, where time was of the essence and when we actually went into the first lockdown due to COVID-19 and, and, seeing actually what the viruses could could do and so we adapted all our processes to ensure that actually we could contribute to the research effort uh, during the pandemic so we've um, established a virus COVID-19 cohort and then from there we actually recruited members of the public as well as patients with uh, various degrees of severity so we had uh, individuals who were completely asymptomatic so walking about not aware that they had COVID to patients who were admitting uh, admitted in a, in a hospital but just needed to stay for only a few days to obviously patients who had a much more severe infection and then required um, ITU um, stay as well. So from that, we recruited about um, 8,000 uh, participants to the COVID-19 virus source. We've supported about 50 research projects already, and wow. some of them have actually led to some very uh, key finding and um, high-impact publications as well. So we are really kind of proud of that because it showed that uh, we could change our processes and really contribute to, to, to the research um, at a time where actually we needed everything and anything thrown at, at, uh, at COVID. So some of the highlights, for example, was uh, studies from uh, Ravi Gupta, uh, who is a professor from the University of Cambridge again, and who showed that actually some individual for example, in our aging population, as well as uh, immunodeficient individual, didn't respond so well to um, the uh, the vaccine, for example. Right. So when the vaccine were rolled out, if you recall, we had quite a large gap between the first and the second dose. And because we were trying to have everybody, as many people as right. possible, to get the first uh, dose. But um, it was shown actually through those studies that actually a high percentage of individuals who didn't have a fully functional immune system would not develop the same vaccine response. So potentially they were not as protected against COVID as we might have thought. How do you manage the, what I imagine is a really large influx of ideas, requests, and research programs, once you've built a bioresource of the scale that you all have, um, you know, there's a there's an endless list of scientific questions and ideas I think that smart scientists come up with. How do you balance that being the mission of the resource ultimately to enable these kind of discoveries with some of the real challenges around things like participant fatigue and you can't ask participants to take part in um, an endless array of research opportunities. Plus there's the operational complexity of running, like you said, 50 50 research projects even within that um, 
that cohort of participants? How do you balance those two aspects of um Yes, it's, it's quite challenging, actually. Luckily, almost, we had to drop out all our non-COVID work. So, you know, all the effort were on, on focusing to, to, towards COVID. So at least it actually put on hold all the non-COVID work. So whether it's uh, diabetes or cognition and mental health, etc. And uh, that did allow us to, uh, to actually uh, focus more on those studies because we felt that the urgent public health need what yeah. much greater there. Um, we obviously look at the potential impact of, uh, of a study and then trying to actually gauge if actually that science, we're not reviewing at all pro a proposal. This is not our job. We're trying to see if actually it would be the best use of the sample, the data that we already have, and obviously of the recalling of our participants. So Every uh, work uh, involving uh, members of the public is very tightly regulated. So you've got ethics and governance um, sitting over all of this. And for us, we actually can invite our participant up to eight times a year. And this has to be a maximum of four face-to-face -face participation and another four, for example, online questionnaire or things like this. Right. So, but it was quite interesting to see that um, members of the public were very keen to contribute. So we have had also some complete members of the public completely come independently, uh, phoning our, our uh, barristers team to try to just say, how can I help? You know, how can Amazing. I join? How can I actually contribute to research? And this, we had not seen this before COVID. Is, the, is it a, because there is, um, it, you know, it's, it's discussed frequently how difficult it is to engage people in research for a variety of reasons. There, there may not be anything in the immediate term for you as a participant. There, there can be fear, concerns, all sorts of reasons not to participate. But I think you all are, are living proof that there's at least hundreds of thousands of volunteers in the country that are really engaged with them. I'm curious whether there are things you've learned over the last nine years about how to make research and taking part in research resonate with people to seem like um, something that would that would really be worthwhile doing? Or are there people in the population that naturally kind of self-select and opt in? And as cohorts get larger to millions or tens of millions of people, we actually you know, may have false hope from some of the smaller cohorts. Because as I, as I hear about cohorts being announced in this country and around the world at the scale of millions to tens of millions of people, I wonder whether the lessons we've learned in the in cohorts of the size of yours or the UK Biobank that are hundreds of thousands to half a million people, which of those things we can port over to this new level of scale. Um, but what what we might um, what might be a false lesson learned that as we get into the really 10% of the population being involved in research, we need to, to relearn potentially. I don't know if it actually scale up. It's a lot of work. So so UK Biobank have half a million barristers is just over 200,000 participants on our books. It's also because we do recall by genotype or phenotype, a lot of our participants actually have joined the barristers and they have never been recalled themselves. So we right. probably have used their data, most likely as well their sample, but we never necessarily have recalled them actually for participating in, in a research study. So we are always battling with this and how to retain our participant. How do we remain engaged with them to ensure that actually they know that they have signed and they have not forgotten. And, and also to just show 
what their contribution, especially in terms of data and, and sample, have made and the impact that it has actually done for research. So this is quite challenging, actually, and uh, maybe courts who will have millions of participants can afford almost to lose some because of the large scale that they, they start with. But I think that um, engaging and retention of participants is, is very, very crucial. It's not a mean feast. I think also there is more concern um, about industry as well. And when you talk about genetic data, what are you going to do with my data? Are you going to sell it? Are you going to pass it on to in, uh, insurance as well? you know, for complete different purposes than actually contributing right. to health research. So there is a lot of also insecurities about this and and um, and participants want to actually own the right to decide what Barisource or Ozacore do with their sample and their data. And obviously it is there. So we have to ensure that we listen to them and, and they actually guide us to what kind of research they are happy and feel comfortable um, to, to support. Yeah, th this might be a good time to start to talk about the project we're working on together, a participant portal that, that mm -hmm. you all are developing for the bioresource volunteers. I'd love to hear more about what got you thinking about this. You, you spoke a little bit about the need to really invest in participant engagement and retention. What got you thinking about developing a participant portal? And, and I know next month, um, looking at showing early versions of the platform to get early participant feedback. So it'd be great to hear more about the, the motivation behind that, what you've done up until this point to engage participants and what you're thinking about for the next five, 10 years. Yes, thank you. So I think, you know, so far we did some open days and, and then trying to be at a science festival and where raise awareness of, of research. But that's actually to raise awareness more amongst any member of the public and not necessarily keeping our participants engaged. So yeah. we have some newsletters, uh, obviously when we contact them to invite them, we show you know what kind of study um, uh, they are out there that they could contribute, but obviously you only invite uh, to study um, for participants who are suitable for that study. So it, it, they, they'd only see a very narrow view of what the Barisource is doing. So we felt that actually to keep them engaged and also have much more interaction with them, we could have a platform, so that participant portal, whereby participants could come and then just look at the arrays of study and clinical trials that are there out there, even if they are not suitable themselves for that particular trial or study. And also to just trying to make them decide whether they are keen to um, or still happy to, to provide a blood sample. Maybe actually, you know, they had a bad experience or they have a venin puncture fail now and they do not want to do this. Um, or are they okay to contribute to industry-led studies and just trying to seek out their preferences, really, try, trying to see what fits best for those participants. And maybe life is a bit too busy at the minute and they don't want to be um, harassed almost by getting an invite from the barrister. So they want to go on pause for six months, nine months, a year. And that is kind of a something that they can also have and, and update their, their contact detail. You know, maybe they have been um, diagnosed with a new condition or they have stopped uh, smoking and, and all that help 
us to actually determine their profile to invite them to future studies as well. So it was very much that kind of engagement we wanted from from our participants. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I think about a lot is a lot has changed in the last five years. Um, could be even longer than that. That that GDPR has come into force, mm. and and there's also nothing to say that in the future there there won't be different data privacy legislations, right? I, I worry sometimes that biobanks that have relied too much on very broad upfront consent that it's mm. it's important to take that broad upfront consent because you don't want to be bothering people constantly to ask for for everything there's a balance here but i also worry that if there's no clear link back to participants then if if the legislation changes for example and says you need to affirmatively reconsent people every every five years or ten years or whatever it might mm. be then then there there could be really major resources that are lost and not because the participant doesn't want to want to participate, but just because the infrastructure isn't hasn't been put in place, for example, to keep that dialogue almost like keep it refrigerated. Is that is that something you all have worry about or think about um, or, or or think could be on the horizon at some point? Well, I think I think it could be, as you said, legislation always change, and it's very difficult to gauge what actually we will have to 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 go through and. And the larger the cohort, the more work, obviously, on the right. ground for the Barrisos team it is. But I think that to give that ownership back to the participants, they decide on what they want to contribute, what uh, type of data and to whom um, we, we actually are going to, uh, to share it with, then I think it's, it's, the, it's a key part here. It's very much making that responsibility and ownership back into the participants. I'd love to hear about some of the projects, programs on the horizon for you all that you're really excited about. One big area is rare disease. Um, and, and I know recently there's been a rare disease action plan. One of the things for listeners outside of the UK, this, this may surprise people, although I've talked about it a lot on the podcast, the UK is really very organized from a top-down level at setting strategic priorities, which growing up in the US, we only done this. I've only seen this in a rare set of cases. Um, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the kind of work you all are planning to do in rare diseases. In particular, I'm, I'm really interested in some of the work around the, the newborn screening that we discussed earlier. I know you're you're working closely with Genomics England and others on um, rolling out a, a program to test out newborn screening. What are some of the other examples in rare disease that you're excited about? So we've got about 60 rare diseases projects that are currently um, actively uh, recruiting for the Barrisol. So this is a very small number considering the thousands of rare diseases out there. But we actually focus on rare diseases recruitment where there is a research interest. So clinician or, or, or PIs coming to, to the, to, to the Barrisol asking if actually we could take on a new cohort for a new rare disease. Um, but we are also now working more with charities and also patient groups. So last year we had a Ring 20 patient group that approached the Barrisols and they were very interested to actually start recruiting Ring 20 or just Ring chromosome uh, rare disease because some of those are ultra rare so you, you wouldn't get so many patients actually just even in, in the UK. So we are working more with them to try to, to get a, a Ring chromosome cohort as well being set up. And then just in the last um, three, four months, we also um, collaborated uh, with uh, Cystic Fibrosis Trust, so a charity, and to trying to have the 
whole of the cystic fibrosis patient population in the UK, so even in the devolved nation, to actually join the Barrisor. So trying to actually get wow. all the different registries and, and charities working together. So this is actually more the patient voice now as opposed to the clinician coming and wanted to have a specific uh, cohort of patient recruited. It's actually the patients or charities working with patients coming to us to, to do that. So this is quite exciting for us. That's very exciting. And what's what are the main drivers behind that? Are, are, the, are the patient organizations you're working with wanting to start to run natural history studies or, or collect um, samples that could ultimately be a stepping stone towards uh, you know clinical clinical trials and drug development program or or what are those what are those kind of projects looking at doing over the long term um so as you say so because we we collect a, a sample and hopefully we get uh, especially for rare diseases we're trying to have exome or, or whole genome sequencing on those individuals so there is actually a, a good possibility to do more stratified personalized um, uh, treatment for some individual because actually we have found that not every treatment will work for every patient with a set condition. So actually, especially for rare diseases, there is a, a good avenues to explore here. So this is why I think as well uh, the link is is being you know more broader now with with some charities and patient group because they see the potential for potentially better understanding of their condition. Yeah, and I think it's so important to bring all these groups together. You've mentioned industry, patient groups, academic researchers. It's it's very hard to get everyone in the same room, and I think you all can play start to play that role more and more of being that convening platform where everything comes together. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear more about how you interface with industry because I know you do a lot, and it goes through a a pretty rigorous vetting process and access review process because, as, as you pointed out earlier, it can be a sensitive topic for participants. I'd love to hear about how that arm of what you do works and um, and the role that you play as that interface between the, the nationally funded research and um, and private industry research. Yes, yeah, so industry gets scrutinized as much, if not more, than other academic or clinician um, institutions that approach the bar resource. And as you know, yes, it's very sensitive. Some uh, participants are very much against uh, contribution to industry. But I think that um, in general, you know, UK industry partners do know what they are doing. They are also right. struggling in getting new drugs um, you know, on the market. This is actually very costly for them. And uh, sometimes you know, getting volunteers and participants to their study is quite challenging. They, some of those industry partners have their own mini cohorts where, you know, but in general, it's people who are quite healthy, I think. They don't have necessarily a population uh, cohort with with patients so if actually we can offer them maybe some ibd patients or some uh, uh, you know immune mediated inflammatory disease patients or rare disease patients and um, then actually for them it, it, it would be very adventurous what we're trying to do with with industry is obviously like everybody else they have to put an application that application is considered by a committee that consists of obviously members of the barrister centers um, national program our funders uh, key members um, and stakeholders uh, around the country but um 
There is always a, 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 a contract. You actually have industry partners detailing exactly what they are going to do in terms of numbers, um, the samples or tests they will do on participant, what data they are going to generate for what purpose. And in general, we always try to have everything open access as much as possible. And the Barisos doesn't keep any IP. So this is very reassuring for uh, industry partners as well, because whatever they discover is theirs uh, and for their own benefit. But there is quite a lot of scrutiny across the board from, you know, discussing uh, their project to the application being granted and then again following to the, uh, to the completion of that study. It seems to me like uh, just hearing you also talk through the variety of disease areas you're focused on, that a, a big part of your strategy is around developing really, really deep cohorts within specific disease areas rather than trying to um, build an, an ever large kind of population cohort. Has how, how is that has that been a part of the strategy from the get go or how has that come about? Because there are many other projects, both in the UK and, and worldwide, that are taking a really very different approach. They're so interested how you think about that that approach versus to, to say, for example, we've, we're just going to recruit a million people across the UK. And then after that, we're going to recruit 2 million. And then after that, we're going to recruit 5 million and, and so on. 65. Yes. Yes. Um, eventually 65. <laughs> or maybe more by now. Yeah. Um, so I don't think there is a, a necessarily a right or wrong approach. I think for the Barisos, we started mainly as a cohort of healthy volunteers, whatever healthy you mean by that, everybody right. has their quirks, right? But actually we realized that there was a niche for researchers wanted to have access to blood samples or, or individuals without a specific condition. But we realized also quite quickly that industry as well as academic institution were interested in looking at specific conditions, so rare diseases, IBD, etc., and wanted to stratify more and trying to find actually why some of their patients didn't respond to a specific um, treatment. So for example, in IBD, it's very difficult for some patient to be in remission. You know, they suffer from flares quite a lot. And why one does more than the other, then, you know, there is obviously a need for that patient to be in remission because their quality of life is much better and it also obviously costs much less to the NHS. But there is an impact on health. If you can actually manage those conditions in a much better way, it might not work with a blanket approach. And then having courts of patient with a specific condition where you can start to say, right, we are interested in only those subgroup of patients with a specific genetic component, maybe variant X, because we think it might be linked to getting flares on a regular basis in IBD or whatever. Then all these kind of hypotheses, you can do it much better if you have a dedicated cohort to study those conditions. In your 1 million, in your 5 million, you will also have several hundreds potentially IBD people because there is so many in the UK. I think it's about 500,000 or 300,000 in, in the UK. But, you know, if you have a dedicated court for this, you can do much more for those patients. Yeah, that completely makes sense. And I, while you're talking through that, I, I was also thinking about the, the EU as a whole. You, you know, you, you're from France, as you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, but you've lived in the UK for a long time. and the NIHR Bioresources is a, um, you know, is, is a, is a really comprehensive uh, network across the UK. But I'm curious how you all 
partner with others across the EU? Are there other similar resources in France, Germany, Italy, Spain, and further afield that you all either formally or informally think about linking up with? Because for many of the rare diseases, there, there just aren't enough patients in the UK uh, period to do a, a meaningful analysis in some cases. Yeah, we're aware that some countries trying to have courts of, of patients. We have colleagues coming from Switzerland in the past to trying to see what, how we actually did set up the barrel so they could learn from this. Uh, I think in some of these Scandinavian countries as well, they are trying to have some courts as well. And um, it's a bit difficult. So we interact with everyone. Uh, it's difficult to really work very closely um, with, uh, with others outside of, uh, of England because the NHR is very much dependent of the uh, Department of Health and Social Care and NHS England. So it's already quite challenging sometimes right. to work in the devolved nation, let alone in EU or across the, uh, you know, the, the pond a bit more. And we also have to be mindful about um, data. So, you know, we collect and generate a lot of data on our participants. Data security is actually quite top on our agenda. And obviously, if we were to work, let's say, with the US and maybe their regulation towards data is very different. So right. uploading massive amount of data on their servers, the cloud might actually not be very suitable for our purposes. We would feel maybe that this would not be as safe. So there is a lot of consideration to do, but we certainly do work as much as possible with, with other organizations. Yeah, and and I think you know you've got you've still got so so many people to reach in the UK, right? That there's a lot of work to be done here. This this may be a bridge we cross in um, in a few years time, but the, I think the core data privacy, the coordinating challenges, the operating challenges seem like uh, it would be very challenging. But I think this is an important role that some of the patient organizations can play in, in the rare and ultra rare diseases that we discuss because they they don't have to be confined by um, you know national borders, and so they can serve as that link um, in many ways between registries that are that are regional. Absolutely. Just to wrap up here, we're we're close to running out of time. I'd love to just hear about any of the new programs or technologies that you're really excited about. I think people come to you all the time talking about long reads or linked reads or new kinds of omics assays. What are the, some of the one or two things that you're most interested on that may not be uh, on on other people's radar that uh, that you might be hearing about first or or early before they hit the mainstream? Well, I think I think we try to always support um, any new techniques and and um, and platforms. So um, it's it's key for us to get as much phenotyping information on our participants, uh, especially for rare diseases. Uh, we think that it's actually very complementary to everything that is genomics. Um, so, for example, at the minute we have an RNA sequencing platform for some of our rare disease. Um, um, projects. So it is actually 10x um, sequencing, um, trying to do a bit more of uh, uh, omics as well. So proteomics, different platform as well there to try to combine that together. So, you know, any researchers interested in, in developing new platform and um, if they have an interest in, as I said, either some rare disease or common disease patient that we have, we would certainly consider 
any new project and, and trying to work with them on those, yes. How about sensors, wearable devices? When you mentioned phenotyping, for mm. some reason, my brain went straight there. How are you thinking about those or, or getting requests for that kind of work? Yes, so we thought about this, actually, all those wearable you know, things, I don't, I don't know. I, I, we have talked about it internally. And I think that, you know, we will have to seek out the views of our participant members as well. You know, we have a panel or a group for participants of the virus or to just see how they feel about it. Because obviously you can't push everybody to wear a, you know, device to actually capture some of um, of the, some of their health, a bit like, you know, the, the watch or whatever that different people have. But we we are actually thinking about this. It's just about how do you convince as well your yes. your core that it's a good thing to do. And um, well, there's some really interesting research that that I think you all can do, but it is not not without its its ethical challenges. So you know we've talked about recall mm -hmm. by genotype studies, and there are there are now many many examples of incompletely penetrant genetic disease. If we took an example of, of something like LARC2. Parkinson's, we know that people who carry the LARC2 G2019S, a, a high fraction of them will go on to develop Parkinson's disease, but many will not. And I, I've got to imagine that equipping uh, people who have, have and don't have that genetic variant with wearable devices in, for a long period of time could lend some really interesting results and in who are, what, what do the movement changes look like in people who ultimately do go on to develop or not. But there's a there's a layer of ethical challenge of recontacting people who may not know they have this genetic variant. You know, the, the point you made about the, the asking people to wear these devices for a really long period of time. So so I, I don't have the answer of how you'd actually run that study, but yeah. given given all the work you've done, I think you're gonna probably start to get I'm sure you already do requests like these and have to think through how do we how do we ethically figure out if it's feasible or not. What? Yeah, absolutely. And and even now we have actually some research projects that actually by the recall of specific individuals, you know, we have some work on APOE, for example, so cognition, et cetera. And, um, you know, you just feel like, well, people have actually consented to the barristers to contribute to health research. And it's not necessarily for knowing that they are more at risk of developing, you know, cognition disease condition in the future. Same about, you know, BRCA genes, you know. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure there are uh, many women um, in, in our panel who carry um, the variant, um, but the same manners as not why they have joined the barristers to learn that they are a higher risk to develop, you know, uh, breast cancer, et cetera. So it's, it's very difficult to know. Some people do want to know that they are higher risk because then they can, change their life yes. accordingly. And some people do just do not want to know. And, and, you know, that is a challenge as well is to respect our participants' views on this. And when we have studies where you could actually learn about an outcome that may impact in your, uh, on your health in the future, we have to be very clear in our invite that actually, if you participate in this study, you may actually learn something about your health in the future yes it's very challenging and there's uh, in my mind there's a there's a whole tier of questions that you have to go through do do you want to hear about these kind of opportunities then when the opportunity comes we're not going to just email you and tell you you've got apoe we're going to ask 
would you like to opt in to learning whether you have it or not? There's a whole series of steps uh, that you have to go through and, and really think through it carefully. And, and it sounds like it's something you all are are doing and we'll see much more of in the next uh, next decade. I'm sure. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been a great conversation. Thanks. Thanks so much. And um, anything else to add or do people want to follow you on Twitter and uh, see your your petrol uh, your petrol head. I think your uh, picture on Twitter is you driving some kind of jet or uh, or airplane of some sort. Maybe you could tell uh, tell the story behind that. Uh, well, yes. Yeah, so th- this is just a tiger moth. I, I don't do this on a, on a daily basis. No, that's that's true. But it's true that the, there is some uh, petrol head in uh, in my blood. I think. But, but yes, no. It's been lovely speaking to you. Anyone interested in in uh, in the Barrisource can actually uh, yeah find me and the Barrisource on Twitter and LinkedIn. And then obviously, if you're interested in joining or asking for some research support, just come and knock on our door. But thanks very much for having me, Patrick. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. My pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for listening. As always, if you could please share the episode with a friend, if you liked it, that's the best way for other people to hear about it. You can also leave a review on your favorite podcast player, Apple, Spotify, wherever it is to help other people find us. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time.